This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy. There's a new book out that anyone who takes seriously concerns about climate change and wants to understand the present state of the climate debate should read. It's called Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response by renowned climate researcher Judith Curry, Ph.D., Dr. Curry has long studied climate change, teaching climate courses at the Georgia Institute of Technology, publishing numerous peer-reviewed papers, testifying before Congress, and running her own climate website along the way. Thankfully, Dr. Curry has taken time out of her busy schedule to discuss the book with us today. Judith, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Sterling. Judith, before we jump into your book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to work on climate issues, and ultimately, what led you to start your website, Climate Etc.? Well, I spent most of my career in academia, most recently at Georgia Tech, where I served as chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences for 13 years. My PhD thesis at the University of Chicago in 1982 was on the topic of radiative transfer in the Arctic, which became an issue of central importance for climate change. So it was fairly natural for me to be entrained into the community of climate researchers. In 2006, under the guidance from Georgia Tech, I started a company, Climate Forecast Applications Network. I was seeking to advance the ways that decision makers use weather and climate information to manage risk. A change point in my academic career occurred in 2010 following ClimateGate. I was very concerned by the behavior of the IPCC authors that was revealed by these emails. I began speaking out publicly about the need for greater transparency, public availability of data, more honest treatments of uncertainty, and respectful interactions with other scientists that are challenging their findings. In 2010, I started my blog, Climate Etc., to open up a dialogue about all the uncomfortable topics that the IPCC and activist scientists were trying to sweep under the rug. My statements following ClimateGate were regarded by the climate establishment to be heretical. For my sins of calling out misbehavior by scientists and advocating for a higher level of integrity, I was essentially tossed out of the so-called tribe. Michael Mann came up with a strategy of just labeling me as a climate denier as the simplest way of dismissing the uncomfortable issues I was raising. As I became more disgusted with what was going on in the academic climate community, I resigned my tenure faculty position at Georgia Tech in 2017 and went full time with my company in the private sector. So, uh, in one sense, you walked away from a, a what I'm guessing was a pretty decent, steady income. In the other sense, you freed yourself up to do what you thought was important without sort of the academic shackles. Exactly. So, Judith, what motivated you to write Climate Uncertainty and Risk, and what do you hope to accomplish with it? 
Well, in spring of 2020, I was approached by Anthem Press to write a book for their new sustainability series. At the beginning of the COVID lockdown era, it seemed like good timing to write a book. I viewed writing the book as a great opportunity to synthesize and integrate my previous writings and experiences into a book with the goal of providing an intellectual counterpoint to the climate crisis narrative. Now, Anthem Press is an academic press, so their main target audience is university classes, libraries, and other researchers. The main academic target audience for climate uncertainty and risk is in the social sciences and professional schools such as business, law, and journalism. But I also wanted the book to be accessible to the broader public that's interested in the climate issue, and particularly decision makers in the public and private sectors. So my challenge in writing this book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, was to make it pass muster in academic peer review as a genuinely original contribution that was well-documented, while at the same time, I wanted to make the book accessible and understandable by people in a broad range of disciplines, as well as the general public. So what am I hoping to accomplish here? Well, we've been told that the climate problem and its solution are simple and straightforward. My book provides an antidote to this oversimplified view by exploring the uncertainties and complexities associated with both the problem and its proposed solutions. I'm seeking to open up a bigger space for understanding and discussing risks from climate change and for debating a broader range of options for responding to these risks. Well, you took on a, a, a big task, and, um, you know, in my reading of it, I'd say that you uh, struck the right balance. Uh, it is uh, academically rigorous, but it's also written at a level that, you know, your average, a, a lay reader could buy it uh, and, uh, and understand what's going on, which I think is critical because... Uh, you know, I, I, I come from an academic background. I, I have a Ph.D. I know what it's, write, what it's like to write for academic journals that get read by maybe the people in your field, you know, a, a subsection of the people in your field. So, you know, a few hundred to a few thousand people, right? Uh, but if you want um, real impact, you've got to reach beyond academia. And so I think that that's a great, uh, great goal you set. So you as almost everyone I know does, acknowledge that climate is changing and that humans are likely playing some role in it. But you seem less convinced, uh, as, as you know, you read the book, you find out, that it's causing a crisis. And what has, so I've got to ask, what has motivated the talk of a crisis and how has it played up by the IPCC to the detriment of sound understanding of the state of climate change? Chapter 10 of my book is on risk assessment. In a nutshell, we have badly mischaracterized climate risk with a lot of hidden value assumptions and political agendas hiding behind the words crisis, emergency, and even extinction. The so-called climate crisis comes from mistakenly confusing the slow creep of global warming with the consequences from extreme weather events that have little, if anything, to do with the warming. However, if we remove the risks associated with extreme weather events from the consequences of global warming, the perceived urgency for reducing fossil fuel emissions is greatly diminished. 
Well, climate propagandists understand that it is exactly this confusion between weather and climate that they can exploit to amp up the fear and demand urgent action in eliminating fossil fuel emissions. Another factor con is concerns about inequitable risk exposure to poor populations and the crisis that climate change is causing in underdeveloped countries. While the poorest populations would benefit far more from access to grid electricity and help in reducing their vulnerability to extreme weather events than from reductions to the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, politicians and activists in Africa and other underdeveloped countries make exactly this point. Nevertheless, these countries are not provided with the support to help develop their own energy resources International aid for development is now focused on green energy requirements rather than actually helping these countries to develop economically and to reduce their vulnerability to weather extremes. You know, that's a, that's a critical point that I try and make uh, often. And, uh, you know, at least in my estimation, the, the, the quickest way to help really vulnerable people, the poorest in developing countries, is to help them become wealthy because wealth correlates with better adaptation, uh, anticipation, infrastructure, and response to uh, extreme weather events, whatever the cause or source. Uh, I, I think that's indisputable based on the data. Uh, it's, it's amazing that more people don't understand that. Agreed. So... Judith, how has the term climate change come to denote a worldview and not just a scientific term? And what have the implications of this been? Well, in their efforts to characterize climate change as dangerous, it's not just extreme weather that is blamed on warming. Climate change has become a grand narrative in which human-caused climate change has become a dominant cause of societal problems. This perspective was highlighted on the cover of a recent issue of Time magazine with the title, Climate is Everything. Everything that goes wrong reinforces the conviction that there's only one thing we can do to prevent societal problems, stop burning fossil fuels. Unfortunately, this belief leads us away from a deeper investigation of the true causes of problems such as public health, inadequate water resources, weather disasters, and national security. In actuality, risks from human-caused climate change are convoluted with natural weather and climate variability and are dominated by societal vulnerabilities of developing countries and poorer populations. We're coming to realize that many of the problems attributed to climate change are really symptoms of mismanagement, bad governance, and poverty. These could be controlled if we had better governance and more development. And finally, we need to recognize that what has been cast as a global crisis is for the most part thousands of local vulnerability emergencies that are revealed by extreme weather events. That's a critical point. I mean, climate, they talk about global average temperature, but that is really um, sort of a nonsense term. It's just um, it's like averaging, uh, you know, your grades in a course. 
except I think less telling than that uh, because the grades can be fairly objective, <laughs> whereas temperature recordings, depending upon uh, how they're taken and stuff, seems to me to becoming much more subjective. But regardless, uh, it's the it's the local impacts where people are. I mean, it's it's locally where people are impacted. It's it's uh, the coastal, you know, a coastal region here, uh, a mountain pass there, um, fields uh, in the Great Plains or in Africa's uh, food belt. Uh, it's it's not a global thing because there is no single global impact of climate change. There are a lot of little impacts. I think it's critical that you make that point. So, rapid fire, three questions. What's the Goldilocks dilemma with regard to climate change discussion? What is the problem with overconfidence? And what biases are produced in the effort to build consensus on climate matters? Well, the Goldilocks dilemma relates to hidden assumptions about our values. The Goldilocks dilemma refers to the children's story, The Three Bears, where each bear has their own preference of food, beds, and room size. After testing each of the three items, Goldilocks determines that one of them is always too much in one direct extreme, too hot, one is too much in the opposite extreme, too cold, and one is just right. So which climate do we want? The UN has implicitly adopted the premise that our climate was just right prior to human interference, generally regarded as prior to 1750 and the start of the Industrial Revolution. However, few would choose the pre-industrial climate of the 18th century as the optimal climate. This occurred during the Little Ice Age and was one of the coldest centuries of the last thousand years, with viciously cold winters of the Northern Hemisphere, George Washington's Valley Forge and all that. So who gets to choose whether warmer or cold global temperatures are preferred? For example, areas of the world that currently cannot easily support populations in agriculture, such as northern China, Siberia, and northern Canada, may become more desirable in a future warmer climate regime. Basically, we can expect both winners and losers with any global or regional climate change. So with the implicit assumption that warming is bad, the UN climate negotiators use the precautionary principle as a basis for international treaties to prevent dangerous climate change by eliminating CO2 emissions. With a specific policy agenda of eliminating fossil fuels, the UN has dealt with uncertainties by asking the IPCC to establish a consensus on dangerous human-caused climate change, sort of a speaking consensus power approach for decision-making. With this mandate, the IPCC has worked for the past 30 years to establish a scientific consensus on dangerous human-caused climate change. As such, the IPCC consensus is a manufactured consensus arising from an intention consensus building process. The problem is that an institutionalized consensus building process promotes groupthink. As a result, the climate consensus is being confirmed in a self-reinforcing way. 
Further, a broad group of scientists derive their confidence in the consensus in a secondhand manner from the institutional authority of the IPCC and the emphatic way in which the consensus is portrayed. All of this results in overconfidence in the IPCC's conclusion. As a result, the IPCC consensus has become canonized through a political process, not a scientific one. This manufactured consensus has bypassed the long and complex validation process as to whether the conclusions are actually true. Consensus enforcement becomes even stronger when people confront questions that trigger moral emotions and concerns about group identity. These include saving the planet and also protecting the political clout and government funding base for climate scientists. Not only does all this hamper scientific progress, but it has narrowed the scope of climate policy options that we are considering. People are rightfully concerned as to whether the risks from urgently eliminating fossil fuel emissions are worse than any conceivable risk from climate change. It's, uh, you know, hearing it described that way, it's a little bit discouraging uh, that we can make progress. Um, and I guess this, you know, hopefully your book to some extent can serve as an anecdote, an antidote to that. Um, so how has your work or was your work leading up to the book been received by your colleagues in the climate science community and in the wider realm, wider realm of climate activists? Be they NGOs, scientists, or politicians, and how has your book itself been received? Well, since starting my blog, Climate Etc., in 2010, my work has been deeply troublesome to activists, scientists, and other activists who want to present a nice, tidy, consensus-based problem and solution to policymakers. However, scholars from a range of different fields have found my work to be very interesting and I've developed a valuable network of open-minded scholars from a range of fields. Decision makers in the public and private sectors who have real decisions to make are seeking my analyses and advice. Specifically with regards to my book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, I'm getting a lot of interesting feedback and some of it unexpected. People who follow my blog or follow me on Twitter all seem to like it a lot. Now this is not exactly surprising. Um, there are some interesting reviews on Amazon, mostly five stars with a few four stars. The interesting ones are from the more alarmed perspective, who generally characterize the book as biased but important, and nevertheless give the book four stars. The most interesting review so far is by an organization called Court of the Grandchildren. In spite of criticisms of the book for straying from the more alarmed party line, the review highlights a number of positive points. Their concluding statement is that climate uncertainty and risk is a book worth reading. However, they only recommend it to readers with advanced knowledge on the topic. It seems they're concerned that anyone with an open mind might actually find my book too convincing. <laughs> sort of like, don't read the Bible unless you're a confirmed atheist, lest you might be converted to Christianity. <laughs> um, with regards to academic researchers, the most interesting response of, 
have been from economists. Several economists have commented that my chapter on risk assessment seems off, since I barely mentioned Knightian risk and cost-benefit analysis, which are the main risk analysis tools that economists use. It seems that I did not hit hard enough on the point that I regard the risk management tools used by economists as completely unsuited to the complex, highly uncertain, and ambiguous risk such as climate change and the COVID pandemic. I hope that I get the opportunity to discuss these issues in depth with an economist on a future podcast or something. <laughs> I noticed in your book you did, uh, you did cite uh, one economist, uh, Richard Toll, a bit, and I wonder if he's given you any feedback. No, I haven't gotten any feedback from Richard Toll. No, that's too bad. Well, I've gotten, yeah. Yeah, because no, he, I, you know, he might he might get what you're trying to say, but there you go. Oh, I, 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 he might. Yeah, he might. So, Judith, your book is deep and comprehensive, uh, and we barely touched on the first part of it, and haven't touched at all on parts uh, discussing managing risk in the face of uncertainty. Let's get to that a bit. Uh, what policy options are there to respond to climate change that are rarely, if ever, discussed? that you discuss in your book, which you believe deserve broader acknowledgement and serious consideration, and why? Okay. Um, part three of my book argues that we need to fundamentally rethink the overall framework for how we deal with complex, uncertain, and ambiguous problems such as climate change. In moving forward on this issue, we need to abandon the idea that we can control climate change even if we are somehow successful at achieving net zero emissions. This basically attacks the heart of international climate policy since it's almost entirely based on controlling the climate through CO2 emissions. The risk management strategy outlined in my book is based on integrative thinking that acknowledges the tension associated with different perspectives adopts best practices from risk science and decision-making under deep uncertainty, and focuses on building resilience and anti-fragility. This framework can lead to broader risk management frameworks that are local, politically viable, and that support human well-being both now and in the future. For complex, uncertain, ambiguous problems such as climate change, the best risk management approach is robust adaptive decision-making that builds resilience. Robust decision-making inverts the usual decision-making process via an agree-upon decision approach that seeks a robust decision, one that performs well across a wide range of possible futures, preferences, and worldviews. By contrast, the agree-upon, oh, the, okay. Uh, by contrast, the agree-upon assumptions approach that the IPCC uses tr tries to discern whose unknowable facts are the most accurate. So the agree-upon decision approach to focuses on actual solution finding. And it has room for people to disagree about various future scenarios and whatever. So robust decision-making strategies include the following. 
No and low regret decisions include increasing efficiency of electricity use, elimination of methane emissions from petroleum-related activities, research and development into new energy technologies, financial mechanisms to share risks such as a catastrophe bonds, better water resource management, and incremental adaptation strategies. These are strategies that people across the spectrum can generally agree on. Another strategy for robust decision-making is incremental flexible decisions with reduced time horizons that helps to prepare for uncertain conditions by monitoring how the future evolves and allowing adaptations and course changes over time as knowledge is gained. So a, a lot of the solutions you just described there, a lot of the at least uh, approaches you described there, uh, it seemed to me f- fit very well into um, the developed world. But what about developing countries? Uh, how... What has to take place before those very things you just described are, uh, you know, the primary um, way of responding there? Well, the foundation is we have to support economic development in these countries. And we have to, you know, there are some success stories. And one that I highlighted in my book was Bangladesh. You know, in 1970, when Bangladesh split off from Pakistan, I mean, this was the poster child for, you know, complete disaster and a total basket case of a country. You know, that this even penetrated my own teenage sensibilities with Beatle George Harrison's concerts for Bangladesh. Yep. The, first charity <laughs> conf- the, the first charity concert done. Right. Well... They've done really well from themselves. They are now, their life expectancy is now approaching, you know, the U.S. value. Their birth rate is way down. They're, they're now approaching, you know, a mid-income country. They, what they did is they developed their own fossil fuel resources, and they used this to develop their economy, and they did this against the, the advice of, the UN and World Bank, et cetera, and they've been very good at disaster management. Um, in fact, my company even worked with Bangladesh on an early project on extended range flood prediction and how people could better prepare and evacuate to higher ground with these longer range predictions. So, you know, Bangladesh is a success story, Vietnam you know, is following in its footsteps. On the other hand, there's some intractable cases, Pakistan and many of the African countries come to mind. But, you know, th- this this turn away from economic development and diverting funds to green energy projects is just making things so much worse for these countries. And it's just, oh, you know, it's it's... It's green colonialism, energy apartheid has been labeled in all sorts of ways that are unfortunately very descriptive and very apt. Yeah, it's, it's, it's morally bankrupt. 
It's, Absolutely. You know, it's trading off the, the well-being of present and near future generations and not even get, gaining, you know, for the well-being of future generations since they will be less uh, left less well off because of the actions we take today. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. So, uh, Judith, to close, big picture, if you could make just one point for our listeners to take away from our discussion today, what is it and how can your book help people make sense of what we truly know and don't know about climate change and how we might best respond to any challenges it poses? Okay. Climate change, whatever its cause, should be viewed as an ongoing predicament. Over the course of human history, we've adapted to climate change. We will continue to adapt, and more rapidly, with advances in technology and infrastructure improvements. The urgency of eliminating fossil fuels is vastly reduced once we decouple the risks from the slow creep of warming from the emergency risks of extreme weather events that have little to no influence from warming. Reducing the urgency gives us time and space to imagine and implement a 21st century energy infrastructure to provide energy that is increasingly abundant, secure, reliable, inexpensive, and clean. Wind and solar power are not the answer, and their rapid widespread implementation would introduce far greater risks than from any conceivable near-term climate risks. Striking a balance between the security of basic food, water, energy, and material supplies with the least possible impact on the environment, including CO2 emissions, is arguably the greatest challenge of the 21st century. By acknowledging uncertainties in the context of better risk management and decision-making frameworks, in combination with techno-optimism, there's a broad path forward for humanity to thrive in the 21st century and beyond. To illuminate this path, we need to open up the climate policy envelope to new possibilities that support human well-being and thrivability in the 21st century. Judy, it's been good to speak with you. I hope we do it again soon. In the meantime, I want to thank you for coming on the show on behalf of myself and our listeners and allow you the opportunity to tell our listeners how you, they can get your book. Oh, well, thank you for this opportunity, Sterling. Um, first, my blog, Climate Etc., is at judithcurry.com. If you're on Twitter, follow me at CurryJA. And my book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, can be ordered from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. There's hardcover, paperback, and Kindle versions available. Well, thanks once again, listeners. Thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we analyze the climate science and policy claims going forward and the work of Dr. Judith Curry on climate science and policy in addition to other people's work. Please also continue to follow us as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. In addition, you might also jump on our Climate Change Roundtable live stream every Friday on your favorite social media streaming device. 
uh, or service where Anthony Watts, Linnea Lucan, myself, and the occasional guest discuss the climate topic of the week. Uh, complete with taking questions from viewers. So that gives you a chance to give us some feedback. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye.